0: heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored the gaps were beginning to be closed and they became very angry they started to conspire to attack Israel and so on they mocked they used sarcasm threat conspiracy the threat of an army they even called in the lawyers that's when they knew they were in trouble for legal action verse 10 then judah well, let me read verse 9 first. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and the night. And then one of their own midst, Judah, says, The strength of the laborers is failing. There is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. Our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. That is discouragement. Father, I pray that as we uh, speak this morning to something that is really where we live, we all face discouragement. As we look at symptoms and... uh, As we look at the solution to discouragement, I pray that you, Father, would make these principles applicable to where we live and that we might live above and beyond discouragement to your glory. I pray, Father, this very real human condition and emotion, that we might address it in our individual lives before you, that we might be, Father, uh, more effective in serving you as we face this monster of discouragement. Be our teacher this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What we see here with the discouragement was not mostly circumstantial, though some of it was, but much of it was that internal stuff. And that's where we battle, is in that internal stuff. The story is told of a lady named Edith who lived in Darlington, Maryland. She was the mother of eight. Coming home one Saturday afternoon, she discovered that five of her children were huddled together intently focused on the ground. As she slipped up to them, trying to see what the big attraction was, she couldn't believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of the circle was a litter of skunks screaming, she said, children, run! And all five kids grabbed a skunk and ran. (laughs) Now, isn't that just the way it is? There are skunks in all of our lives. For Nehemiah, it was go to Jerusalem, organize the building of the walls, get it done, and get home. But when Nehemiah shouted, keep building, The builders all grabbed a skunk and ran. Nehemiah's situation is analogous to what we call today feeding alligators. We're down in the trenches of living and making a living, and we sometimes become overwhelmed. Sometimes we even get that uneasy feeling that we're no longer feeding alligators, but that we ourselves are being fed to insatiable alligators. I want to give you a perspective that is quite uncommon. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. You're familiar with this passage. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He pleaded with the Lord three times that the Lord would take it away. And here's what the Lord said verse 9 my grace is sufficient for you now here's the here's the punchline for my strength is made perfect in weakness and here was paul's response therefore most gladly i will rather boast in my infirmities why that the power of christ may rest upon me therefore here's his perspective I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That runs counter to everything that uh, we hear in our culture. Paul's perspective was that when there are trials... When there are distresses, when there are persecutions, he says, man, that's really cool. Now, why is that? Because it pushes him toward the one who is strong. I am coming, I'm not there yet, but I'm coming to understand that when things are going smooth, I don't do so well because I am prone to start Trusting in myself. But when things are challenging, I'm on my knees. I'm calling out to the Lord who is my strength. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's in the hard stuff of life, it draws us to the Lord. At least it should. The alternative is unforgiveness and bitterness and ugliness. And I've also come to believe that affluence Comfort and leisure are the devil's playground. When I'm comfortable, when things are going great, when I've got five cents in my pocket left over, I'm good to go, and I'm just uh, not trusting the Lord. (laughs) But when it's not that way, uh, I tend to really be drawn to the Lord more and more. And that's why Paul said this. Now, we're all acquainted with discouragement. Nehemiah offers a solution, but first, he shows us the symptoms. The symptoms of discouragement. Those monkeys of discouragement on our back are quite obvious, some of them. A lingering, unresolved conflict. A besetting sin. Maybe it's procrastination, or maybe... For many of us, it's over-commitment, or too much month left at the end of the paycheck. Some, some discouragement things are very obvious. Others are not. And you add these all together, they tend to erode our spirit. And here are five of them that ne- uh, Nehemiah lists in our text. The fourth chapter, beginning at verse 10, Judah comes to Nehemiah, and he says simply, The strength of the laborers is failing. Back in verse 6, the walls were half done. But now, half done, there's no brass bands, no cheering crowds, no flags waving. The newness is worn off, and that's when you'd better have your life solidly fixed upon those motivation factors that were clear at the first chapter of Nehemiah. The walls were broken. That the gates had been burned. People were distressed and reproached. What was his response? He wept. And then he prayed and he fasted. And for four months, he prepared to confront the king for permission to go and build those walls. He was motivated. What is it that motivates us? If it is those things that God has brought to our lives through his word, and they are passionate in our heart, we will be able to relate back to that foundation as a basis for going on when we're fatigued. In a very practical way, notice it's the laborers who were fatigued. It wasn't the commentators. It was the guys down in the trenches. And that's most of us, most of the time. If you're familiar with recovery literature, you've probably heard the acrostic halt If you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, halt. If you're hungry, get something to eat. If you're tired, go to bed. If you're lonely, talk to a friend. If you're angry, do what's necessary to come to peace. Speaking of tired and uh, fatigue and sleep, I asked my uncle, who taught... He had a graduate-level degree most of his life, pastored a church at the same time, and in his spare time, wrote 15, 20 books. The last one, his uh, Magna Cuma something, I don't know. All I think of is maya Copa, but I know that's not right. <laughs> but anyway, the, the lifetime uh, fruit of his life, he wrote a 1,300-page systematic theology, that was recently translated into Hungarian and Portuguese. It's making the rounds. I mean, who buys 1,300 page systematic theologies today? Not very many, but this book is going pretty good. He uh, started writing it when he's 70, published it when he's 85, and got it out of the market when he's 90. He turns 98 this year and he's still going strong. I'm going to see him at uh, reunion in August. Anyway, this is the guy. I asked, Uncle Bob, what is the, the, the most important thing that you can point to for your ability to keep on keeping on and be successful in writing all these books and all these things that you do? Without hesitation, he looked me in the eye and he says, eight hours of sleep every night. Isn't that spiritual? It is very spiritual. It's part of taking care of yourself. When you're tired, get rest. The laborers were experiencing fatigue. Verse 10 goes on to say, and there was much rubbish. This is a classic case of losing sight of the objective and facing, uh, facing the obstacles. In a matter of three or four short weeks, they had gone from an attitude of we can do it to it can't be done. There's a principle here. Never focus excuse me, never confuse the decision-making process with the problem-solving process. How many poor decisions are made because our focus was on the obstacles instead of the objective? I've served on elder boards for the last 40-some years, and as I look back, I see how many times we made a decision based upon the obstacle rather than the objective and that happens in our lives just as much it's it's so important that our motivation and our vision that we do not lose sight of who we are and why we are and where we're going third thing was failure we are not able to build the wall says in verse 10 their focus had all of a sudden been turned to the limits of their own resources Their focus had had gone from their strength, which was the Lord, uh, to the obstacles. Grace in the Christian life, we are saved by grace through faith. But then it is by grace that we live our Christian life. And grace in the Christian life is God's enabling power. And when we get our eyes off the Lord, when we experience loss or failure, and we get our eyes off the Lord, we're sunk. You say, but yeah, what, what, if I, what if I still fail? I got my eyes on the Lord and I still fail. Are we less of a person? The person who has never failed has never achieved anything either. The person who has never failed has never achieved anything either. It's one thing to lose a battle and it's quite another to lose a war. A young executive asked a notable CEO of a large successful corporation, Sir, how did you become successful? He answered, experience. How did you gain experience? They're making bad decisions. He learned to make good decisions from the experience of making bad experiences. We tend to... Lose confidence when we fail rather than learn what God has for us that we might get up and go on. Now here's the big one, fear. Verse 11. And our adversaries said, notice who's talking, the adversaries. They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Boils down to this, Fear is the fruit of listening to the wrong voice. Our advers- they were listening to the adversaries. That's what happens in our life. Satan walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. My Bible tells me in John 10 that Jesus conquered Satan at the cross, he is a defeated foe. The only power that Satan has is deception, a lie. As a roaring lion, he seeks to bluff. He seeks to believing the lie, whatever lie he's using this day, that day, the next day. This is true in the human realm as well as in the spiritual. If there is fear in your life, Check out whose voice you've been listening to. And then start speaking the truth to the lie that's being told. Jesus said, be of good cheer, I have overcome. Do you live in that truth or do you cower under Satan's fear tactics? Paul said, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Speak the truth when fear arises. That is yielding. That is, wielding the shield of faith. And the Apostle John said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I hear this all the time, fear, but, but some fear is normal, natural, and it's necessary. That is correct. There is a healthy fear, and there is a fear that comes from the satanic kingdom. Good fear is circumstantial. If someone comes up behind you and says, "Boo!" boom, you're going to be frightened for a second. The fear of Satan's kingdom is perpetual and undefined. It's just kind of rumbling under the surface. It's, It's just always bubbling. It's just kind of always there. Good fear is protective. Satanic fear is paralyzing. Protective. Where I grew up, we had rattlesnakes. And when a rattlesnake buzzed, it warned me. It was protective. Ungodly, satanic fear is paralyzing. The purpose of it is to render one inactive, paralyzed, defeated. Good fear is instructive. I learned not to put my hand on a hot stove. Ungodly fear, satanic fear, is confusing and fatalistic. Good fear is empowering. Bad fear is enslaving. God's fear brings peace. Satan's fear leaves us in darkness and in fear, and it destroys. When we're focused on the wrong voices and we live in fear or whatever, we ultimately lose hope. Fatalism, verse 12. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Have you ever felt like the guy in the outhouse there? Just want to chuck it, run, escape, give in, give up, pull the handle. Nothing is more tragic than to see somebody who has lost hope. When a person loses hope, death usually soon follows. I remember well in the Vietnam era, just shortly after, listening to some of the, the POWs, who said, those soldiers who were being held who lost hope of release or escape died. Those that had hope of being rescued are released persevered they didn't give up against all odds they still le- they still lived <clears throat> millions of defeated christians who have given up and retreated into themselves defenses up walls of bitterness walls of unforgiveness the loss of hope just give up And sometimes, folks, ten times in this situation, those nemesis can be unrelenting. And that is the time we must be overly zealous in turning to the Lord and speaking truth. Fatigue, the loss of strength. Focus, the loss of vision. Failure, the loss of confidence. Fear, the loss of security. Fatalism, the loss of hope. These forms of discouragement will come knocking. When they do, here's what Nehemiah did. Verse thirteen begins never the or excuse me, therefore, in the immediate the immediate situation, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. In the face of debilitating discouragement, Nehemiah took decisive action to deal with the immediate concern. Very important. It's critical. But in so doing, what sustained him, what motivated him, was his unwavering focus on the long-term goal, which was to build the wall. Nehemiah had a willingness to give up short, term convenience and gratification for long-term gain. And I find that as one of the primary reasons for the ineffectiveness of many Christians in our American culture today, that instant gratification fix. Rather than being willing to discipline one's life to give up short-term gain or gratification, for the long-term goal. Christian maturity uh, comes only in that way. Now what follows here was Nehemiah's response to the discouragement of the laborers, And he says, verse 13, oh, excuse me. <coughs> he didn't say he did, he focused, he refocused them. Nehemiah refocused the people on the goal and then armed them against the immediate threat of the enemy, Because building the wall would end the threat, keeping their eyes on the long-term goal. Nehemiah was able to stay focused. We lose our way when we lose our focus, whether it be in life or ministry. We begin to falter when we forget what we're about, why we're here. Why are we here? The arrow there, what is the goal as a church? And as individuals. Uh, Our church motto is presenting everyone complete in Christ. I said it, reproducing passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. Is that the goal for your life? For your heart? For your ministry? When we lose sight of of the goal, we lose heart. We lose focus. Then fix fix your expectations upon the Lord. When we become discouraged, we, we forget. Not what, but whom. Verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the elders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Get your eyes on the fo- focus on the Lord. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Yeah, but if the anxiety meter is registering on overload, there may be some practical things you need to address. But the bottom line is remember the Lord. I think that's why Paul had that unusual perspective. Expectations upon, placed upon people... Will let you down. But placed upon the Lord, you can count on it. And I'll say right up front here, I will let you down. Just like you will let me down. Sooner or later. But in all of my life, the Lord has never let me down. And that's what the Nehemiah is saying here is fix your expectations upon the Lord and then forge your energies into a balanced life. Now, I'm making applications here. These are not interpretations from here on. This is an application. With one hand, verse 16, with one hand they worked at construction, and with the other they held a weapon. Discouragement becomes a fixed condition when we become deflected from the goal. What he is saying here is focus your energies on the goal. Don't be deflected by all this. You've got a sword in one hand, you can build with the other. Keep building. Keep focused. The primary remedy for depression, I believe, is to keep doing the next thing. When we start Setting back, focusing on ourselves, uh, fixating on somebody, or obsessing about a problem, we become depressed. The solution is to get our eyes off of ourselves, onto the Lord, the needs of others, getting involved with those things that are needed and essential, keeping ourselves Focused and busy uh, is the best solution I know to depression and discouragement. So this is maybe a stretch, but by way of application, we lose our way when our lives become unbalanced. Nehemiah here is saying, "In the light of the present situation, we need to keep focused. We need to keep our eyes on the goal. We, yes, we need to defend ourselves, but we need to keep going. Uh, I see that as a, as a balanced life by application. And then foresee your escape in time of crisis. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. The principle is simply this that I'm taking from this this text. Don't go into battle alone. Don't go into battle alone. Now, here's a, a text that has been quoted and misquoted and misapplied in many ways, but properly understood, it's important for us to hear. Nehem, excuse me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another for the purpose of stirring one another up to love and to good works. How? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of son, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Whether it be... Uh, in church or in a home group or friends that share at a deep level we need in our personal christian lives others of like mind who can challenge who can exhort who can warn who can encourage who can share life with you. There is no such thing as a spiritually healthy Christian hermit. God created us incomplete with a need for others to share in our lives, in our Christian walk, to make us mature. There's just no other way. And if you think you can be the lone stranger, I mean the lone ranger, out there doing the Christian thing all by yourself and everything's going to be great, it, it ain't going to happen. You've heard the illustration. You take a hot coal and set it outside of the other coals, it soon turns cold. That's the way it is in the Christian life. We need each other. Do not isolate, do not surrender to turning inward. And last, focus your enthusiasm on a serving others mindset. Verse 21. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. And I'm making application here again. <coughs> but Paul said it this way in Philippians 2, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let nothing be done out of selfish Ambition. I believe that the distinctive mark of a mature Christian is that his life is well-ordered, but he is willing to be inconvenienced for the welfare of another. I believe that a mature church or Christian individual, one who is contagious... One who is drawing other people to find out, what's the deal here with you? It has an orient- is a life that is oriented toward other people. He's not filled with selfish ambition or being self-absorbed. But that describes so much of our culture about us that it is unique and unusual when there are people who are other-oriented for the sake of Christ the love of Christ being lived out through us. Let each of you look not only for his own interests. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. So, ask yourself, are you a bit depressed? Discouraged? Ask yourself, Am I focusing my efforts upon the right goal? Or am I listening to distracting voices? Voices that would place my focus on things that are temporal and unmeaningful, unlasting, useless in the end. Am I focusing my efforts upon the right goal? Am I fixing my expectations upon the Lord or placing them on people that's huge there are some people here this morning probably I don't know your situation but very well who could be really discouraged and maybe disenfranchised because you placed your expectation upon people and they let you down I hear this all the time the church let me down who be the church? You and me. When we say the church us down, we had our eyes on people. Somebody let us down. We had our eyes off the Lord. Am I forging my energies into a balanced life? Or has my life become out of balance, undisciplined, distracted from the main thing? Am I foreseeing my escape in time of crisis or have I been trying to live independent of other believers? And finally, am I focusing my enthusiasm toward a serving others mindset or have I become self-absorbed? A sure way to be discouraged and depressed is to put your focus on me, myself, mine, and I. It'll draw you down every time. Discouragement is a dreadful disease, but in the end it not, need not be fatal. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the determination to do what is right, no matter what. And that's the determination in the end that will defeat discouragement in your life. Emotions are real, but they're not always accurate. And the best way to deal with discouragement is to live above your emotions on a plane of doing what you know God says is right. And when you do what is right, you'll be amazed how discouragement will dissolve. Nehemiah was a man who had every reason to be discouraged. But he maintained godly choices in his life And he became the man whose very name, the name Nehemiah means encouragement. Ultimately, discouragement is a choice. We are victims of discouragement only if we choose to be. And that last statement just pointed at me. Because I came home today very discouraged. And I was focused on the problem. I was focused on myself and my own emotions. So me and the Lord had a little talk, a little argument. Guess who won that argument? And uh, this thing of discouragement, folks, this is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing maintenance that uh, these things I've talked about today, and we're going to hit some of these things in the next week or two, but it's an ongoing living relationship with the Lord that we deal with this stuff as it comes. God has given us uh, a lifestyle with his enabling strength, his grace, that we can have victory through these things. And yes, we will fail. We will become discouraged. But as we mature in the Lord, if we don't stay there and we employ the things that God has given us, we can choose to not be victims of discouragement. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the principles there, the applications that we can make to our lives. I thank you for men like Nehemiah, Father, a a mere bartender at the palace in Babylon who had a heart for God, left his captivity with no resources, but the power that he received with bended knee before you as you empowered him and supplied the resources. I thank you, Father, for these principles that we're learning. I pray that you would, by your grace, enable us to apply them to our lives.